So it's wonderful to see familiar faces. When, I moved to, um, when you move to a, a different country, you so miss familiar faces. In fact, it gets to a point where if you see someone that you've probably seen just a few times before, you sort of start behaving like a Labrador puppy. You know, I know you, I know your face. <laughs> so it's wonderful. And it's also really exciting to see lots of new faces. Really exciting. Um, and it's amazing to be in South Africa. Oh, sure, this country. So beautiful. Such a warm heart. You get so many beautiful smiles wherever you go. The warm heart of Africa. It's going to be very hard to go back. Anyway. Um, and of course, there's a wee bit of sadness about Henry's face being missing. You know, familiar faces. Henry always prayed for me before I preached. And so, you know, I know he's more alive than he ever was. But there's just a wee bit of sadness that I don't see his face here. We miss it. Hey. So my dad always says that all revelation is valid, flawed, and incomplete. And mom writes me these lovely letters. I get home from work and I open the door and there's a letter on the doormat. So nice with email age to get a letter on the doormat. And um, it's the kind of letters I have to read with a, with a um, highlighter because there's so much sermon material in them. <laughs> and um, one of her letters said, Pa always said, that's my grandfather, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand. And Jonathan always says, let the one be center stage and say its truth long enough to do its work and then look at the opposite truth and let it have its full say. And so I'm unconscious as we, I share with you that we sometimes have a tendency to turn in terms to think in terms of either or, in terms of biblical truths, either faith or works, either taking up our cross in obedient service or surfing the waves of supernatural signs and wonders, either embracing each other with grace or confronting each other with truth, either crucifixion or resurrection. And of course, it's both and. And I have found it immensely liberating to discover the both and. It's both faith and works. And so I want to start by reminding you this morning that I'll only be revealing a small part of one of many biblical truths. And what I say this morning is only one side of a both and coin. And if you really enjoy what I say and think, yes, amen, yes, then your spiritual growth path might be on the opposite side of the coin. You better go find what's the opposite kind of the side of the coin. And if you're sitting there thinking, this just might be what God's wanting to say to you. This might be where your, your, your spiritual work needs to be. Yesterday, we visited the grave of my grandparents. Wow, it was just amazing. Look at them there, hey? Some of you will remember them. Yeah. I showed this photo. Oh, I work as a chaplain in a care home, and I showed this photo. Um, we, we, sh we share photos. It's one of the things people like to do, share family photos. And I was sharing this photo, and one of the residents who always looks on the, on the sort of negative side of life and has always speaks her mind, she never says anything sort of fluffy or nice, really. 
And she looked at this photo and she said, they look like genuinely lovely people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mary said. (laughs) My gran and grandpa. So, um, but their stories and their photos here sort of shine. There's a sense of they shine something, you know. But their stories are full of really tough, difficult times. Pa was away at war, and so he only saw his second daughter, my mother, when she was three. Is that right? Yeah, you know. Saw his child at three. And their eldest daughter died when she was 12. Of a hole in the heart. Eh? My grandmother mourned for many, many. And in fact, part of that resulted her in falling in love with another man and leaving the home. Yeah? Tough times. But their marriage survived. And we read at the grave yesterday because their marriage survived partly because their lives were more than just their individual stories. For they believed that their lives were part of a much bigger story. A story where faith wins the day over fear. Hope defeats despair. Where our mourning is turned into joy. And love trumps hate. They allowed the greatest love story ever told, God's story, to break into their lives. And so their individual stories became intertwined with a story of community of Christians whom they loved and served, and this outward focus prevented them from being swallowed up by self-absorption. They walked with God. And we read this at the grave yesterday. This is um, my, my aunt found a photo album of my grandmother with love letters from my grandfather to her. And this is just one of the love letters we read at the grave. To my most beloved companion and sweetheart, For nearly half a century and the greater part of your 70 years, you have allowed me to accompany you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. First I came as a tear, but thanks to you, my darling, I am part of the golden harvest. Parts of the journey have been tough. And I am happy to make for the tape with you and with our Lord Jesus Christ as our pacemaker. I wouldn't change places with any other man in the world. I want to see the sun set with you and meet the new dawn together. I love you now far more than on any other part of the journey. They allowed God's story into their lives to heal the brokenness. I am, one of the things I was doing working as a, as a chaplain in a care home, I was pushing a resident in her wheelchair out to the local town, and I was still finding my feet as a chaplain, not quite sure what, I, what it involved. And, um, and I, I was probably talking a lot about the weather, because I find that's what you do in the UK, you talk a lot about the weather. <laughs> I've learned that's what you do, as when in Rome, you know, do as the Romans do. Um, but I must have kept quiet long enough for her to say, my nan used to bring me to Aylesbury. And Christine's still quite young. She's in the care home because um, she needs care. And uh, I said to her, well, my gran used to sing Count Your Blessings. And she immediately started to sing Count Your Blessings. She finds it easier to sing than to talk. She battles to talk. 
And so we walked along Aylesbury singing, count your blessings, count them one by one, and you'll see what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, count them one by one, and you'll see what the Lord has done. And it was one of those really visceral experiences of walking with God, you know. There's Christine in a wheelchair in a care home singing Count Your Blessings. And it's something we try and do on a Sunday when you're all together around the table on the evening. We remember Gran. I say, we're going to remember Gran. And we sing Count Your Blessings. And we think over the past week what, what blessings we have had. So my topic for today is walking with God. And in preparing for today, I was reminded of a talk given by a friend, Mary Therese, at our wedding. And she spoke about Micah 6, verse 8, and said, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Marie Therese advised Richard and I on our wedding day that our story of a, as a couple was not just about the intertwining of our lives, and about what Richard would do for me and what I would do for Richard, but also what would the Lord require of us. Now, if you Google walking with God, you get a number of scripture verses. If they're coming up there, yes. So we've got Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Amen, Amen hey? <laughs> the mystery in that. It's just this little verse stuck there <laughs> in Genesis. I love it. These, and then we've got, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And then now when Abraham, Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. But what Google fails to highlight, because it's got a little brain really, are the many other accounts of people whose obedience and faith allowed God's story to break into both their individual stories as well as the story of their people as they walked with God. And there are so many exciting stories. Think of Esther, Daniel, Ruth, and of course Moses, to name a few. And when Moses encountered God in the burning bush and was trying to think of 101 reasons why he couldn't do what God was calling him to do, God's response to all his doubts was that he, Yahweh, was the one who holds the whole world in his hands and would go with him. I will go with you. I will go with you. However, this promise did not in any way equate to an insurance policy against difficulty. He was walking with God, but it was difficult. Moses messed up, got thoroughly fed up, both with the people of God and God himself. Lots of arguments. And he never actually entered the promised land. Hey? Ish. How unfair was that? But he walked with God. He experienced the glory of God so much so that when he left the tent of meeting after spending time with God, he had to veil his face because it shone so much. 
And we read in Exodus 33 verse 11 that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Wow. Aish, how amazing is that? And walking with God with Moses seems to end with a whimper rather than a bang. For Moses dies on a mountaintop overlooking the promised land he is not permitted to enter. But... If you go forward in time, over a thousand years later, Moses shows up again in the bigger overarching picture. The bigger overarching picture that starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and ends with, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Moses shows up again in this overarching picture, this meta-narrative of God's story, for he is present along with Elijah, Jesus' transfiguration. So Moses' death on the mountaintop was not the end of the story after all. Esh, yikes, how incredibly amazing is that? You can see I'm glad being back in South Africa here. Can't talk like this. In England. <laughs> You're going to hear lots of aces and yikes, okay? Sorry. And hey, man, and all that. Now, the earliest account of the idea of walking with God can be traced back to the Garden of Eden. Whether you interpret the Garden of Eden literally or figuratively, the story reveals that walking with God is not our default mode, that instinctively we want to be free agents who charter our own course, Rather than submit to the ways of supreme authority, we want to sing along with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. So in Genesis 3, we read that God and walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve hide from him among the trees. And God calls out to them, where are you? Where? Are you? And Michelangelo depicts this heart-rending scene on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And Adam here is representative of humanity as a whole, and apologies to those who don't relate to being represented by a white man. But wow, that's that sense of... I lo- what I love about that picture is all the cherubs holding God back. Because, hey, he just might leave heaven. And go down to earth in order to reach Adam. And that gap between them, yeah, that separation. A tear fund video on poverty that has been recently released proposes that the primary cause of poverty is separation. Separation from God, separation from our true selves made in the image of God, and separation from each other. I find it quite telling that the cause of physical poverty and spiritual poverty are basically the same. For all have sinned. For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And we see the separation working at many different levels. Of course, globally, there's increasing separation between rich and poor. I find it interesting that apartheid, 
literally means separation. And so in South Africa, separation was institutionalized. And in some countries, it is still institutionalized between men and women. Some women are not allowed to drive on the road. But we don't need to institutionalize separation. It's rife throughout the world at many different levels. And even within relatively homogenous groups, loneliness is becoming the biggest problem in the West. Homogenous groups all living in their houses that look all the same next to each other, alone, separated from each other. Psychologists, Psychologists tell us that it is our internal divisions ourselves that fuel a lot of this external separation between us, for we often project onto others those things we are not prepared to embrace in ourselves. We want others to rescue us from our inner loneliness and brokenness, for we have become separated from our true selves made in the whole image of God. And so at the very heart of the problem of separation is the fact that we have become separated from God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So what is the solution? The vicar at Joanna's school, she attended a little Church of England school, and one carol service, the vicar there said that when Jesus came, looking back at the picture of Michelangelo, when Jesus came, he took the, picture, he took the hand of God and he took the hand of Adam And he joined them together. And I noticed people in that service who don't attend church anymore. They were just at the carol service as parents. Tears welling up. Because there's a fundamental, it resonates deeply within us. That sense of wanting to be reunited again with God. That separation from God is deeply wounding. For if we zoom out of that scripture, all of us like sheep have gone astray, just slightly and see it within its context, see the other side of the coin, we read, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for all our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah 53. Jesus also came to show us how to walk with God. In fact, early Christianity is referred to as the way in the book of Acts, the way to walk with God. And we read in Acts 2 that the followers of the way gathered together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all who had need. We read that daily they devoted themselves to spending time together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house and ate their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. The solution to separation is walking with God together. It's not easy. Not easy. That's why the separation sort of happens. It's like marriage isn't easy because 
Men are from Mars and women are from Venus and we rub up against each other and smooth out our rough edges. So it's not easy when people from different walks come together. It's, it's, it's rough. There's friction. We also read in Galatians that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither man nor woman, nor either master or slave. Now, in these days, it's really easy to listen to because on the whole, Jew and gentle division doesn't, doesn't kick us in the stomach. Men and women are, are, are this beginning to get an acceptance in the 21st century of the equality of man, men and women. And master and slave, we get that. That's like so obvious, man. But in those days, that was like being kicked in the stomach. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. You know how much the Jewish culture was based on not being Gentile? So much. It was about, I'm not a Gentile. Are you saying that we have to mix with Gentiles and women and slaves? Like they are one of us? Hey, shucks, it's seriously hard to accept, man. In a 21st century context, we would read, In Christ, there is neither citizen nor illegal immigrant. I say that in England and everyone's like, get daggers. And I understand why. Their little island, it's hard. In Christ, there is neither citizen nor illegal immigrant. In Christ, there is neither VIP celebrity nor ordinary Joe Blog. And I'm personally of the opinion, and it's my personal opinion, and I hope my opinion doesn't separate me from others who have a different opinion, because in the, in the church we've got to stop letting our opinions separate us, hey? and our false expectations, like what you expect me to say. My personal opinion, and I say this very humbly because I could be so wrong, is that in Christ... There is neither homosexual nor heterosexual. I really hope, okay, so I've said that. So in Christ, we are bound together with love. Ish, yikes, this is seriously awesome. Okay? Bound together with love. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is how we walk with God. In 1 John 4.20, we read that we can't love God who we do see if we don't love those whom we... We can't love God who we do not see if we don't love those whom we do see. I kind of want to argue back and say, but it's so much easier to love you than my fellow humans. In fact, it's often easier to love a dog than my neighbor. And God says, sorry, that's not an option. If we choose to walk with God, we will find ourselves walking alongside others. For one of the places we encounter God is in each other. The vicar at the Anglican Church I attend said recently, Christmas is God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Easter is God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever... Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Pentecost is God in us. Okay? In us. And we often are so caught up. I wonder if we're often so caught up in wanting God to show up in supernatural signs and wonders that we forget to encounter God in each other over a cup of tea. 
Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And this love is not the rainbow and unicorn and pink heart, fluffy type of warm, fuzzy love. That sentimental love that Hollywood blasts us us all the time. So we think marriage is just going to be one skippity, skippity, la, la. No. Ah. Nonsense. Total nonsense. This agape love is hugely sacrificial love shown to us by God. This agape, you know, you know the thing of the different words for love in the, in the Bible. And the love mentioned here is that agape love. And this agape love is that hugely sacrificial love shown to us by God. The love symbolized by the cross, the love which prays, not my will but yours be done. That prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, hey? That prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yo. And I've lost my place. <laughs> okay. Um, walking with God means loving like God. A shucks, but this is like super hard to do, man. Thankfully, we have the help of the Holy Spirit, the great comforter and counselor in undertaking this challenging mission. But this is the other side of the coin. This is another sermon. I just want to say, I know for myself, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I leak. And so I often need to pray, come Holy Spirit, fill me again, fill me again. But our walk with God involves both grace and grit. And my emphasis this morning is on the true grit required to walk with God and love like God. The grit required to practice loving like God. For it takes daily practice to love sacrificially. This is the grit that St. Paul talks about when he compares the Christian walk to running an endurance race. In the UK, you see these marathon runners up early in the cold and the dark with their yellow fluorescent bibs, devoted to preparing for their marathon. We read in the early church they were devoted to gathering together daily. Are we devoted like this to loving each other? The first followers of the way sold all their possessions so that none would be without. The thing is, this loving others, this togetherness, this encountering God in each other requires a willingness to be vulnerable. Beanie Brown, a Christian research professor and speaker and author whose initial TED talk on the power of vulnerability has received 10 million hits, she claims, on, based on years of research, that it is those who are willing to be vulnerable who risk connecting with others who live wholehearted lives. She coined the term wholehearted after reading the common book of prayer, I have not loved you with my whole heart. Beanie claims that vulnerability is the path to love, belonging, joy, intimacy, trust, innovation, and creativity, sympathy. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Perhaps one of the reasons vulnerability is key to connecting to others is that because when we allow ourselves to be ourselves and stop puffing ourselves up like toads, you know, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, I'm big, I'm big, I'm big, puff ourselves up. Stop over-dramatizing our own personal story so that there's no room on the stage for anyone else. When we accept how small and vulnerable we truly are, we create space for others in our lives. Perhaps 
perhaps also when we embrace our own vulnerability, we are no longer scared by the vulnerability in others. So we're better able to embrace and love those who are mourning for the death of a loved one or suffering from cancer or dementia or any of the many other terrible traumas that beset us as humans. Working in a nursing care home with people suffering from dementia and MS and Parkinson's and other, other nasties, I'm frequently reminded how vulnerable we are as human beings. However, I also experience the depths of God's love for the vulnerable as sitting alongside someone dying or in despair, depth of despair, I experience an extraordinary, mysterious onslaught of divine love for those I sit alongside. Extraordinary. It's like basking in love. Vulnerability is accepting that we, are rather, we really are rather small and frail. That if we looked at ourselves honestly, we would be meek. In 200 years' time, I doubt anyone on earth will remember I existed. In Psalms, we read that our days are like grass. As a flower of the field, we flourish, and when the wind passes over us, we are no more. I sometimes wonder if God, you know, scientists tell us God is still creating galaxies. I wonder if he just throws another galaxy out there just to remind us how small we really are, as we have the audacity here to kill each other to kill someone made in the image of God. We puff ourselves up that much. We have no grounds to be stiff-necked and arrogant. We are small, very, very small. We might choose to do it our way, but in the context of eternity, it will be for a very short time. I did it my way for like 85 years. <laughs> What does last forever, the psalmist reminds us, straight after reiterating our mortality, is the steadfast love of the Lord towards us. What does last forever, Peter tells us, when reiterating our mortality, quoting the same scripture of, in the psalms, is the word of God. For we are, much, we are part of a much bigger picture which does endure forever. So if we go to the Peter scripture, which is next, because I haven't written it down. Oh, where are we? Um, oh, go, have I not put it up there, the Peter reference? No, sorry. Okay, so in the Peter reference, um, it might be in the newsletter. But the Peter reference is the 1 Peter 1. is in the newsletter. Yeah, okay, so it's in the newsletter. The, um, do, do I need to read it? Because it just also the context of the bigger, the bigger story. Have you found it there, 1 Peter 1? Yes. Should I read it out or people read it in their own time? You'll read it in your own time. Okay. So vulnerability, being squishable, resisting the allure of puffing ourselves up to feel safe, requires sacrifice. We need to be willing to lay down our lives, to let go of our strongly held opinions and unrealistic expectations of each other. We need to be willing to feel pain. The pain of physical, emotional, economic, and social vulnerability. We need to be willing to feel foolish, be willing to figuratively die from embarrassment. As we reach out to those who are just so uncool, man, we need to be willing to become small and squishable as we risk being rejected. And this goes so against the grain. 
We really, really don't like feeling squishable. We don't like being humbled, having our egos dented. It's really not easy. Jesus, of course, shows us the full cost of becoming vulnerable. And I'm not sure you can, as I'm not sure you can get much more vulnerable than a newborn baby lying in an animal manger in a cave, born to teenage parents, miles away from home, living under the tyrannical rule of a foreign power. God, the creator of the universe, in reaching out to us, made himself so small, so squishable. As we read, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I've used a translation there that the language isn't as inclusive as I'd like it. Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If we were all to follow in Jesus' footsteps and walk with God as he walked with the Father, imagine the impact on the world. Hey, shucks, how amazing would that be? Imagine the impact on the world if we were to stop prioritizing the pursuit of wealth, power, and personal honor, making ourselves bigger, and instead prioritize doing those things that increase faith, hope, and love by embracing our vulnerability and dependence upon God and each other. Our obsession with materialism, with owning things to make ourselves bigger, is truly tragic. Consumerism ultimately leads to us feeling just as small and lonely and lost as in reality we really are when we don't consciously walk with God. Hence the high levels of addiction in a world driven by consumerism. However, to follow in Jesus' footsteps to walk with God is very countercultural. It's very hard to resist the constant bombardment of media messages that links our worth to what we own physically and how we look physically. What we own and how we look how big we are, how high up on the pecking order we manage to climb. Hence the popularity of the prosperity gospel, which turns God into a father Christmas type figure and Christianity into an insurance policy against economic or physical disaster. In reality, walking with God does not make us less vulnerable. The lives of the first apostles makes us abundantly clear. Hey, the lives of the first apostles. We have car accidents and get cancer, get divorced, become bereaved. We become victims of addiction and can become bankrupt. And so along with David in the Psalms, we lament, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. How many of you have bones that are dismayed? Eh? And my soul is greatly Dismayed. Last night, I was suffering from insomnia. Oh, insomnia. Ugh, ugh, eh? Insomnia. And I'm lying there and I'm thinking, so I have the power of Christ in me and I can't even get to sleep? 
And then I have a real grumble at God and saying, so you say faith, if I have a mustard seed of faith, I can move mountains and I can't even get to sleep? Hey? And my faith kind of flatlines. Two in the morning, hey? Faith just flatlines. And it's at that point where I say what you always find in the Psalms. There's always a point in the Psalms when David says, but God. Always. He has a big moan and a big whine and then he says, but God. And so in this psalm, he says, But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. And so in the middle of the night at 2 a.m., I just decide to choose to have faith. And I say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in his only son, Jesus Christ. God from God, light from God, light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Through him all things were made. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who is worshipped together with the Father and the Son. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and life eternal. I choose to believe. I have grit at 2 a.m. Then I wake up, have a bit of a sleep, wake up at some time other, and I have the faith again because it's also a gift. I've decided, I've done the grit thing, and then I wake up and it's like, oh, you're there. Thank God you're there because it's also a gift, that gift of faith. And I say, morning, Father, Abba, Father, morning. This is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So how am I doing for time? Because in, 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 in Anglican churches, I have like 15 minutes max. My mother said, oh, I'm, doing, I'm far over. Okay, let's do some skipping. Um, I'm very near the end. Okay. Yeah. So I always scan the Psalms of lament for the turning point, the but God, the nevertheless, the point at which David lifts his eyes to the hills from whence comes his strength, when he stops being swallowed up by self-absorption and acknowledges once again that he is not alone because he walks with God. And David reminds us in the Psalms of the imminence of God, the fact that he is present in all things, and creation is a sign of his presence. And so David lifts his eyes to the hills and encounters God's strength. In an average, ordinary day, I encounter God within myself as I sit quietly in meditative prayer, journeying in, which is often very uncomfortable. I encounter God in the Word of God as I listen to Brian at the Daily Audio Bible Podcast. Anyone else listening to Brian? No, it's very American, but I quite like it. I encounter God in nature as I bury my face in a big, fat, sweet-smelling rose and experience a divine kiss. I encounter God in my family and friends And I especially encounter God, I especially encounter God amongst the least of these in the care home. And Jesus said, whoever did one of the, did, and Jesus said, whoever did it to one of the least of these, did it to me. Time to fit a little bit more. There is a 95-year-old resident in the care home where I work called Betty whose body is so twisted that she can no longer fit in a chair and she's confined to her bed. She lives with pain and is deeply traumatized by her weekly shower. She fears that she might drown when they spray the water near her face. 
And yet, whenever I spend time with her, though she acknowledges that she would rather be at home, she is far more interested in talking of her faith than her fears. She tells me she is never alone, for the Lord is always with her. She says, I'm never alone. The Lord is always with me. She says to me, whispering, I love him more each day. She is the only resident who prays for me and asks me how I'm doing. And when I pray a blessing over her, she prays it over me. And recently I asked her if there was anything in particular that was troubling her that I could pray for her. I said, what, can I not pray for you? Is anything troubling you? Thinking of all the things that must be troubling her. And she said, all the children in the world who have no parents. And she immediately broke into prayer, praying that they might have a glass of milk. Lord, give them a glass of milk. She appears when not sleeping to pray without ceasing. Her eyes are aglow with love, rather like I imagine Moses' face shone after spending time with God in the face in the tent of meeting. Betty might be bedridden, but she walks with God. Amen. <laughs>